Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Coel. And I'm Kenna. Ka, I said that all weird. Ka. Is it Kana? I'm pretty sure we've done that one before. Oh, for <laughs> fucking sure. going i like being in here two days in a row makes me feel good too. Yeah, yeah we did a dak live recording yesterday that's mm-hmm. going to be coming out on saturday and we did that with hillary from lady you're scaring us mm-hmm. and we're really excited about it because we did our very first ever collaboration like where someone else was on the podcast but they weren't in the same room as us it was over discord and the audio sounds so good yeah we were so concerned not so concerned but we were concerned that it was gonna sound like echoey or laggy or something or just different or just different and it sounds like she's sitting right next to us it's perfect it's perfect i'm so excited (laughs) it does sound really good we like to pride ourselves on our sound quality that's something that we've been obsessed with since day one even to the point where like now I feel like I'm, like, hitting things, and I can hear things in the background, Same. and I'm like, oh my god, I wish I hadn't done that. But we're getting better. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. No one's perfect. Except that sound quality. That sound yeah, quality that sound quality is, is pretty perfect. perfect. Sometimes we laugh at inappropriate <laughs> times, but, you know, who doesn't? We're human. <laughs> anyway, it's your case. It is my case. But first, I would like to remind everybody that we have DiagnosingAKiller.com. There you can check out resources and merch. You can also hit us up on any social media platform at Diagnosing a Killer, other than Twitter, which is at Killer Diagnosis. Review us. Oh, review. Oh, yeah, review. Oh, we did get a nice review from Jennifer. Jennifer is one of the two people that I met at the Hooks game. I told everyone on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Super nice. And she posted a five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts. And I saw it today. It was a couple days ago that she posted it. But her title is Informative and Entertaining. Hmm. Out of happenstance, I met Kenna at a minor league baseball game in South Texas. She mentioned this podcast, and I am now hooked. I love the banter with her and her sister. How the discussion will go from serious to laughing because someone mispronounced a word. It (laughs) reminds me how my friends and I will rip each other. The podcast is very informative of the case, killer, and victim, along with the deep dives of mental illness diagnoses. These ladies are funny and are very passionate about mental illness. I feel anyone would benefit from listening to this podcast, either to learn about the cases or to learn more about mental illness. I'm looking forward to more episodes. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks, girl. That was really nice. She was the one that I said deadass to in, like, a serious situation. (laughs) But but thank you. That was honestly really nice because, you know, we get a lot of really great reviews, but also a lot of mixed reviews about, like, different types of the, like, different types of episodes and different parts of the podcast that people really enjoy. Mm-hmm. I like that she kind of enjoys all aspects of yeah. it. Not only the mental illness, but the, you know, just lighthearted nature when we are allowed to be lighthearted, and then also the educational aspect of it. So yeah. thanks for that. It can definitely be tough talking about tough things like this, and I think a little bit of humor kind of relieves a little bit of that tension. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's plenty of times where I've laughed at an inappropriate time, and it's not most of the time, it's not me being like, ha it's, like, uncomfortable as fuck. Yeah. And I'm not going to edit that out because it's a real reaction. It is. It's a real reaction. It's a coping thing. Yeah, absolutely. But if and when, you know, I'll speak for myself, if and when I do laugh at an appropriate time, I like to 
always try to relate back to it at the end and remind everyone that that is not a malicious thing that I yeah. I do personally or that we do together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, thanks so much for that nice yeah. review. I love that. So excited to have three episodes in like three days. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so we're like going to have... Day. Yeah, well, we're going to have Thursday, Saturday, and then Monday already coming mm-hmm. out. And I'm going out of town this weekend. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> like, I see that all the time. <laughs> Every weekend. <laughs> but me and my best friend, Lindsay, are going to the beach. And we're going to spend time with mom and dad. And then mom and dad are leaving for Houston because they're going to go to the Astros games for Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay and I are going to hang out because we have Monday off work. So we're going to yeah. hang out uh, at the RV. Nice. So, yeah, really excited. Are you ready? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I'm like so nervous. Right I know now. you wanted to tell me so bad last night <sighs> who it did. was and you didn't. I'm and glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't. I'm anxious to know who it is. Are you sure that I know this person? Yes. Like there's no way I don't. I don't know if you know the case in and out, but you know who it is. Everybody it, knows who this is who this is. Will it surprise you if I don't know who it is? Yeah. Especially okay. because we've definitely talked about him before. Okay. Hit me. <laughs> Today we are gonna talk about Paul Michael Stefani, a.k.a. the weepy-voiced killer. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> yes. I swear, I don't want to talk about this one. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Uh, okay. Damn. That's honestly... Okay, see, that's one of those moments where I'm not making fun of him. Like, the voice just sounds comical. It's But haunting, that's really though. sad. Like, it's... he's very clearly distraught in that moment. Yeah. And trust me, I, ha- I had to listen to these recordings over and over and over and over again, and they are haunting. Yeah, And absolutely. sometimes the only way I can kind of get over it is, I mean... It's uh, it's hard. It's to exaggerate it in my head, you Yeah, know? exactly. Ugh. Oh, man, I am looking forward to hearing more about this one. I've heard a story on him before, but it's been a while. Yeah. Content warning, this episode will contain audio recordings of someone in distress, threats of suicide, and, of course, murder. If this episode is not for you, we encourage you to check out another one of our episodes. Remember that your mental health comes first, and we love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Throughout this episode, we are going to be playing real 911 calls as well. If that does make you uncomfortable, I'm not really going to give a content warning right before it happens. You'll kind of know when it happens because I'm going to be leading up to it. Either way, if that makes you uncomfortable and you want to skip ahead 20 seconds, 30 seconds, I'm also going to be reading them transcribed as well, so you're not going to miss any of that content. So Paul Michael Stefani was born September 8th to to parents Isidore and Madeline. His father's name was Isidore. That's I find that's cool. such a unique name. I feel like that sounds like the name of like a knight. Isidore. Or like a... Like a... Sir Isidore. Yeah, yeah. like a... Like a what's it <laughs> knight called? Of like the an army table. dude. Like a, yeah. well, not, I don't know what the, you know what I mean. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So I'm already fucking in, up the podcast. Go ahead. And, <laughs> He was born in 1944 to Isidore and Madeline. He was one of 10 eventual children, and he was born and raised in Austin, Minnesota, not Texas. Oh, LOL. <laughs> I didn't know they had an Austin there. I didn't either. Before Paul had his third birthday, his mother and father would divorce, and quickly his mother, Madeline, would remarry oh, wow. to Paul's stepfather, Herbert Bliss. Hibbit. His last name is ironic, by the way. LOL. The family was brought up in a traditionally Catholic household, and Herbert Bliss was known to be a heavy drinker and would oftentimes physically abuse the children and his wife, Madeline. Super religious of him. Yeah. Well, it's under the guise of religion because they should just be obedient, right? Yeah. It had been noted on several occasions that Herbert had actually tried to push some of his children down the stairs in their second story home. Oh my god, what a monster. 
Other than this, there's not much to say about Paul's behavior specifically while growing up. Other than the physical abuse by his stepfather, Paul got along with his mother and his siblings. He actually loved his mother a lot. Mm -hmm. Paul did say that he had suffered from epileptic episodes when he was a child as well. Mm -hmm. So, just something to note. Yeah, absolutely. But other than that, there apparently wasn't really anything in his early life to indicate that Paul would grow up to do what he eventually would do. Yikes. Well, you know, epileptic can mean a lot of different things. It's like a kind of like an umbrella statement, mm-hmm. but it's not far-fetched to think that they might have been seizures and not, you know, and they kind of, I don't want to say they go hand in hand, but you see it a lot with epilepsy seizures as well are yes. kind of common. So that right there could be a, an indicator of, of what's some type happening. Of, yeah, some type of brain trauma or something. Yeah. He would eventually graduate from high school and college with fine grades, nothing to report there. He decided to move to St. Paul in 1970 and start a new life, and quickly would meet and marry Beverly Linder. The two would have one daughter together, but after five years of marriage, they would eventually divorce. Mm. Although everything seemed to be pretty much normal up until this point in Paul's life, something within him snapped shortly after his wife and his daughter moved away from the house. He had already had trouble finding work over the years as he claimed that his epilepsy was so severe that it affected his performance at jobs. This is Paul. Paul. And so I thought I what it sounded like to me at first was that he only had experiences with that as a kid, but obviously like sometimes you don't grow out of that. I don't think sure. you really do grow out of that, do you? No, epilepsy? I don't think you do. If you have yeah. epilepsy, I'm pretty sure it's for life. Okay. My my bad. I misunderstood, I guess, in the beginning. He settled at working at a manufacturing company called Malberg Manufacturing, and this would be in the later years that he and Bev were still married, and he seemed to be pretty successful at it. It was a a long-term position for Mm -hmm. him. Although the details are not entirely known, sometime after his wife had left him, Paul was actually arrested and convicted of assaulting a young woman. Again, it's not known how long the punishment was, or I guess she chose to remain anonymous. I don't know how they settled it. Either way, he would be put on a, a record. He would have it on a permanent record that he was a violent criminal, essentially. Oh, okay. Paul would eventually meet a young Syrian lady whom he had developed a relationship with. He believed in the, rela- the relationship so much that he decided that he wanted to marry the woman after dating on and off for four years. Mm. However, her family was very traditional and didn't really care for Paul So they had actually arranged a marriage for her, and she was forced to break off the relationship with Paul and move back to Syria. Oh my gosh. Just, like, straight up. How hard would that be? Oh my gosh. That'd be really hard, especially if you didn't understand, like, the culture. Yeah. That's gotta be, like, something that really affected him as well. Like, profound loss. Yeah. early on. Not early on, but... Well, it seems like one of his very, very serious relationships. Right. And the only other one that he had was with his wife and his daughter, and he doesn't talk to either of them at this point. Paul's performance at work began to decline due to depression and feeling abandoned by two long-term partners. Mm-hmm. Hitting that cord. Paul would eventually be let go from his job at the manufacturing company as well. Damn. Paul was driven further into desperation and depression. Oh my god, it's awful. In the early morning hours of New Year's Day 1981, dispatch would receive a phone call at 3 a.m., Please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad to Casper on the road. Uh, Malmberg Manufacturing Company Machine Shop. Please, there's an ambulance too. There's a girl who's there. Can you tell me what happened to her? 
the tree, there's a she's laying on the ground in the back by the by the railroad tracks, by the edge What's the address? I don't know. Who are you? And the call ends there. So for those of you that don't know this case, you probably now have a good understanding of what we mean by we our interpretation of the way that he talks and probably why he's fucking called the weepy voice killer. Yeah. Very, very, very clearly someone in a lot of distress. Yes, absolutely. And really it sounds to me like a hell of a lot of like immediate guilt as well. So the transcription, quote, just please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad car to Pierce Butler Road, Malberg Manufacturing Company Machine Shop. Please send an ambulance, ambulance too. There's a girl hurt there. The 911 operator asks, can you tell me what happened to her? The caller, just hurry. She's laying on the ground in the back by the railroad tracks. By the entry? 911 dispatcher, what's the address? Caller, I don't know. 911, who are you? And then the call ends. What a fucking call to get. What a call. So strange. So strange. And it actually kind of sounds like Lyle Menendez. Yeah. Like, almost. Because he's, like, he's so upset, you can't understand what he's saying. Right. And the, dis- the dispatcher is probably like, okay, I I know what's, I know it's a hard, like, situation, mm-hmm. please try to calm down, because I cannot understand. I can't understand what you're saying, You know, right? I, uh, that's... I, you know, I applied to be a 911 dispatcher at one point. And I couldn't I'm do that. Honestly, like, kind of thankful that I didn't get the job because I, I don't think I could. You're listening to somebody's worst day. Yeah, that's you're the you're the person they're gonna associate, good or bad, with that day. Yeah, depending on what you fucking do in that moment, right there. Right. Let's uh, just give a big shout out to 911 dispatchers. Seriously, and all first responders, honestly. Officers and emergency services arrived at the scene to find 20-year-old Karen Potak, who had been beaten with a tire iron so severely that the police and paramedics thought that she was originally stabbed. Oh my god. Her skull had been smashed and even parts of her brain were exposed to the outside world. Oh my god, that's horrendous. She had been found after being dragged behind the Malberg Manufacturing Company building along the railroad tracks left in the snow. That night, Karen was attending a nightclub in celebration of the new year, and around 1 a.m., Karen decided to make her walk back to her place when she was attacked from behind and left for dead in the freezing night. Karen would ultimately survive the attack. However, she wouldn't remember anything from the attack and therefore could not identify the identity of her killer. She, she survived? She survived, but she doesn't remember anything from that crime at all. Well, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. completely fucking understandable. But she did survive. Wow. Whether or not it's, like, shock, like her body like defense mechanism you're not gonna remember or obviously brain damage but damn well i think about the fact that it was cold i wonder if that slowed her blood a little bit i'm sure you know i'm so i'm very sure really interesting dang on june 3rd 1981 five months after this first attack another call came into dispatch You find me, I just stab somebody with an ice stick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Quote, Will you find me, goddammit? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. End quote. I keep killing somebody. What a weird way to phrase that. Just somebody. Yeah, but like... Instead of, like, I keep killing people. Or women. Or I keep... It's, it sounds like you keep killing the same person. Is right. What you say, I keep yeah. killing somebody. But I think that is a true phrase because I don't think that he's killing with a purpose. Yeah. I think it's indiscriminately. 
So what do you think is happening? Like, he can't control it? Like, is it like a blackout or is it like a... I don't know. (laughs) It's just... It's very bizarre. And it seems like there's literally no cause. Like, right. With, with the exception of the epilepsy potential seizures that he has, do you think that he might be, like, in a certain state of mind during those episodes? I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard of that happening before. There's someone with epilepsy having violent outbursts like during their episodes. I don't know, and I think we'll we'll definitely talk more. I think yeah. that there's stuff to un- unravel here. It's just, it seems like so out of the blue every time. So again, this is June 3rd of 81. This is five months after the first call and attack on Karen. So within 30 minutes of this phone call being made, the second one with the ice pick, mm-hmm. in a park four miles away from the original first crime scene, Karen's crime scene, two boys were playing catch in the late afternoon. After the ball rolled away into some nearby bushes, the two would discover that an item that they had originally thought was a mannequin discarded in the bush was actually the body of a young woman. She had been stabbed 61 times with an ice pick, strangled with a shoelace, and was left with only her red jacket on. So now, not only are they getting evidence of a body, but now it's being able to be tied almost to this call. Like, it matches what he said. Right. So it's like, okay, this is not like a prank call. Like, this guy's clearly serious. This is a a real thing. The body did not contain any clues whatsoever to who the woman was, but detectives did find a key in her jacket pocket. This key went to a bus station locker. Like, where you, you know. Okay. Like, when you go to, like, the only time I ever really see that is, like, at a water park. where you have to like, Yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking. So detectives headed to the Greyhound bus station, which was the nearest bus station. Here, investigators would locate the lockbox. They would find several travel bags, bus ticket information, and, of course, the young woman's ID. The girl was positively ID'd as 18-year-old Kimberly Compton. She had just arrived in St. Paul from Wisconsin that day in order to start a new life. Oh, my God, that breaks my heart. Like, she didn't even... That fucking breaks my heart. Like, yeah, her poor family. Through more investigation, detectives determined that Kimberly had actually traveled across the street to an infamous diner that was really popular in St. Paul. There, while eating alone, she was approached by an older man who struck up a conversation with her and offered to show the young lady around town. This man would say things like, I'm old enough to be your father, ha ha ha, just to make her feel comfortable. Eventually, Kimberly did leave with the man. She would be found dead within 30 minutes of leaving the diner. Oh, my God. So we can assume the phone call was made immediately after the crime took place. Yeah. So yeah. she had literally only been in St. Paul for, like, maybe a few hours. That's like, two hours. so awful. Oh, my gosh. Because that's, like, one of the things that I find myself thinking about, like, when I'm out of town. Like, what if something bad happens when I'm out of town? I feel like that would be arguably worse if it happened if I was here. Right. And I don't necessarily go as far to think things like this, but, you know, I'm like, I always bring, like, my insurance card with me, like, when I leave town, mm-hmm. like, just in fucking case. You right. Know? Like, if I don't bring my whole my whole getup, like, my whole purse, my insurance card is always coming with me. Yeah. Just in case. You never know. But that's got to be scary to be someplace by yourself not know anybody, and then literally the probably first person that you fucking meet that offers to show you around. You're like, everyone's so nice here, and then he does that. That is so fucking scary. Isn't that gross? 
to take advantage of a young girl like that, 18, just figuring out her life, probably like, I'm going to, this is where the rest of my life is going to start. And that's just awful. (sighs) Two days later, a phone call was made to a local news station. This time, the presumed killer did not confess anything, but instead called to correct some information that the station had put out about the details of the crime that were incorrect. There was no known recording for this call. I don't know how I feel about that, because up until this point, I'm like, he can't control it. Right. But now, there's kind of narcissistic tendencies coming out. Mm -hmm. And it's like, um, it's like uh, John Wayne Gacy. Wait, excuse me? No, 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 John Wayne Gacy, BTK, (laughs) and he's like, hey, you haven't talked about me in like 30 years. Can you like, remember me, please? Can you like, mention me Yeah, can you mention me? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because up until now, the recordings are so... They sound so remorseful. Sincere. Sincere. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Sincere but accurate, I guess, is what he wants to be going for. Right. Five days later, police received another phone call. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had this tavern. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day, and I can't believe I did it. Big dream. I, just, I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Like, bro, take a breath. Take a breath. I feel like he's so out of breath. Well, he's in distress. Quote, don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry for what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. I don't know why I had to stab her. I'm just so upset about it. I keep getting drunk. I can't think of myself being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. End quote. I cannot put my finger on this guy. I know. It's very strange. It doesn't make any sense. It's like... Do you... I feel like what I'm what I'm thinking is that he gets enjoyment out of the killing, but then feels bad about it, or he secretly doesn't feel bad about it at all, and he's really just putting it on, yeah. so that if and when he gets caught, they'll maybe go easier on him because he sounds very distraught. I don't know. It's almost like he wants to take credit for all of it. And he wants to get caught, it sounds like, too. It sounds like he wants to get caught, but he's not really giving that much information. He's just kind of linking these things together so that you know it's one person. He just wants the recognition as this infamous person, not Paul. Yeah. Not Paul Schifani. What is his name? Stefani. But this person, the killer. The baby voice killer. Right? It's very interesting. And he'll leave, like, he's, like, almost like little breadcrumbs, but he doesn't really say... Like, I feel sorry for this, but, like, don't catch me, you know? It's it's very strange. Yeah. Damn. At this point, police make the connection between the attempted murder of Karen Potok and decided to alert the media that there's likely a serial killer on the loose and that he's likely to strike again. They allowed the use of the audio recordings in hopes that someone would recognize the man's voice. He was then dubbed the Weepy Voice Killer. He didn't give himself the name, yeah, of course. Like we've seen in the past. <laughs> who wants to be? Who wants to name themselves the Weepy Voice Killer? 
I don't know, man. You got a, he got a new, he had to have known that that was coming though. Like there's no other <laughs> name, name for him. Yeah. He's like, shit. Damn it. Should have had like a different accent. When I called him. <laughs> it was also put out in the media that there may be a link between the two victims as both had been apparently wearing red on the days that they were attacked. They should have called him like the bull killer. The matador. Toro. That's, that's interesting. That would have been wild. The public was on edge for another two months until another call came into dispatch. 26-year-old Alan Lopez, who was going through a mental deteriorating state, he had a very long history of mental illness. He was actually threatening, threatening the lives of his mother, father, and his sister and took them all hostage. Oh my gosh. Hostage negoci- negoci- negotiators. <laughs> Hostage negotiators communicated with Alan via telephone, where he had confessed to being the weepy-voiced killer, specifically responsible for the death of Kimberly Compton. Hmm. After a long standoff, Alan eventually surrendered to police, but unfortunately, he did ultimately take the lives of his three family members. Oh no. A quick evaluation of Alan's voice compared to the weepy voice killer's voice concluded that Alan could not have been the one to make the phone call, nor was he the one to kill Kimberly Compton. Yeah, I mean, that's a very distinct voice. It's, and it's really easy to just, hey, make this weird sound with your mouth. Oh, right, you would try. It doesn't sound like him. Okay, cool. He would be charged with the murders of his family members, and after only serving a few months in prison for the murders, Alan ultimately committed suicide in prison in February 1982. Oh, that's so awful. It's a really sad story. I tried to look up more about Alan just to maybe talk about his mental health struggles, but mm-hmm. there really wasn't a lot of information about him. Mm, poor guy. And poor family. Six months later, in August of 1982, a young paperboy was cutting through a wooded area when he spotted a woman's body laying across... Laying across... The Mississippi River. How tall was she? <laughs> She's like 50 feet tall. <laughs> no, but unfortunately she was laying along the Mississippi River. This woman had been brutally stabbed with what appeared to be a screwdriver. Oh my gosh. She had no identification on her. However, a few short days later, a man would actually turn in a purse to police that he found in his mailbox of Hell all places. No. Isn't that strange? Absolutely not. Well, he had looked through the ID and stuff to see if there was any ID and possibly return the item back to the woman. Mm -hmm. But then when he knew about the body discovery, then he decided to turn it into police. Yeah. Through this, investigators identified the woman as 40-year-old Barbara Simmons, a local nurse. The evening before her death, Barbara had struck up a conversation with a man in a local bar. He seemed nice enough, and Barbara mentioned to the bartender, who was also a friend of hers, that she found him attractive, so much so that she was going to go home with him after the bar. This was the last time that Barbara was seen alive. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. Ah. Two days later, the police received another phone call. Fire emergency. Please don't talk to him, I'm sorry, I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh my face. really harsh quote please don't talk just listen i'm sorry i killed that girl i stabbed her 40 times kimberly compton was the first one over in saint paul i don't know what's the matter with me i'm sick i'm just gonna kill myself 
I think I'm just going to. If somebody dies with a red shirt on, it's me. I've killed more people. I'll never make it to heaven. End quote. Oh my god, that is heartbreaking. So this one was really interesting to me because he calls back to Kimberly Compton. That that one was me. So he's trying to take credit for that or say, I'm the same person that did that. Mm -hmm. And then he says, and I thought the first time I listened to this, when he says, I'm going to kill myself, I think I'm just going to, if somebody dies with a red shirt on, it's me. And I'm thinking he, like, I thought he was saying, if you, if somebody commits suicide and it's a red t-shirt, then it's me. I think what he's saying is that he's only going to kill victims with red clothing oh, items. Yeah, I thought at first it was, like, if you find a deceased male wearing red, it's me. Yeah. That's what I thought he was saying, but you're, that makes sense. But I think that he's, that's what he's saying, because the other two victims had worn red. Dang. And I don't know what Barbara was wearing, or if they, if that's something that they just kept to themselves or something, but I didn't, there wasn't any indication that I saw that Barbara was wearing, wearing red. Low-key, like, I would probably be like... Yo, alert that right now to the media. And they did. No one fucking wear red. Really? They oh did. My they gosh. put that and they said, I forget what the what the headline was, but it just said, women women wearing red may be targeting, maybe may targeted or something. Oh and it was an article gosh. about it. That 911 dispatcher was probably like, oh shit, like it's him. Because there's no way that they didn't hear about it. But like, imagine like knowing that there's a serial killer at large mm-hmm. that is, their MO is to call in upset after they murder someone and you're a dispatcher just kind of waiting like every phone call you answer is probably like is this gonna be him is this gonna be him and getting that call and she was like oh shit like you know what else is interesting is i think that he might have inadvertently saved karen's life too because he said send an ambulance to this location you know i wonder if the immediate help didn't you know probably save her life yeah not to give the guy credit and i'm not saying that i just if his if his point was to kill her you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. God, or maybe it's, he it's thought so she was hard. already dead. It's so hard. The bartender at the bar that the two were at the evening before was able to provide the police with a description of the man, along with a few other witnesses. Police went through a crime database searching for violent offenders in the area and came across Paul Stefani's photo. He most resembled the descriptions the witness had given and was ultimately positively identified by the bartender and a few other witnesses as oh, well. Wow. While police were bulking up their investigation, getting to know every detail about who Paul Stefani was, they were actually surveillancing him as well. However, on the 21st of August, 1982, he slipped through the cracks. I fucking hate when they say the term like that. Like, oh, he just slipped through the cracks. No, your patrol officer was probably sleeping or off getting donuts. (laughs) Like, what are you gonna say? I don't know. I thought I thought about maybe not saying donuts and then thinking like, nah, fuck it, no. donuts. Saying he slipped through the cracks is a nice way of saying someone Some, fucked up. Somebody like, didn't do someone their job. Dropped the ball. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was able to pick up 19-year-old sex worker Denise Williams. Denise had been in sex work for some while, and she did know the ins and outs of the streets pretty well. After exchanging money and completing a transaction. Stefani was either meant to drive Denise back to where he originally picked her up or home. I've heard differing details on that. Either way, Denise did become alert when he didn't seem to be driving back to wherever they were supposed to go, right? Fuck that. That's so scary. <sighs> he probably gave her a few, sh- like, different answers, like, oh, I, I, I no shortcut, you know? They always say that. 
All of a sudden, Stefani pulls the car over and begins to stab Denise with a screwdriver. Oh my god. Denise begins to fight back, and she's... I mean, she's nobody's bitch. She sees a glass soda bottle that's in the passenger, like, pocket side door thing. Bad bitch alert. She grabs it and essentially smashes it over his head, cutting his face pretty badly. This ain't no movie theater glass. This shit's real. This is, like, thick-ass glass, too. Those those bottles. After this, Denise was able to make it out of the car, and she sprinted, screaming for help, just to notice that Stefani was quickly gaining on her heels. Oh my god, that is so scary. She's stabbed a few more times, but all of Denise's calls for help would not go unanswered. Thankfully, a good Samaritan came running towards the two in order to break them up, eventually scaring off Stefani. Wow. Denise would survive her attack. She was stabbed, I think, anywhere between 13 and 15 times. Bad bitch alert. Also, Good Samaritan, bad bitch alert. Seriously. Denise would survive her attack thanks to her gut instinct, her fighting back, and also a passing witness. Yeah. Police are called to the scene, and the witness was able to identify Paul Stefani as the perpetrator. Like, does he look like this? Oh my gosh. Does he sound like this? Yes. (laughs) Stefani returned home to assess his wounds. He quickly realized that he needed medical attention. I'm sorry, that's not funny, but, like... So what did he do? He called dispatch for help. No, he did not. Yes, he did. He didn't just go to a local urgent care for, like, the ER? He called because he was going to have to explain how he got these injuries. Therefore, he said he was the victim of a robbery. So he wanted it documented, in my opinion. That's why he called. Okay. The operator who took the call heard similarities in this caller's voice and the Weepy Boy's killer's voice. So as a precaution, the operator sends an ambulance and police to this given address. Bad pitch alert. Straight up. Meanwhile, at Stefani's home, police who are doing surveillance sees officers and ambulances pulling up to his house. They're like, huh? They didn't even see him walk in with a bloody face. Well, it was probably in the middle of the night. That's true. I mean, it was in the middle of the night, not probably. But either way, you know what I mean? Oh, wow. That's really great that they... uh... Or doing something and I'm I feel like here. it's like that Spider-Man meme where yeah. like the Spider-Mans are pointing to each other yeah. or whatever. That's it was the police watching it's the police police. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. Anyways, long story short, it's not a short story at all, or not a long story at all. Stefani was arrested on the spot for at least the assault on Denise that night. Yeah. It would be the next day that he would soon be charged with Barbara's Simmons murder as well. During his interrogations, Stefani denied killing anyone. However, when the crime scene photos were shown to Stefani in the interrogation room, he began to exude stressing behavior, st- stress-reducing behaviors. And with this, his voice began to rise higher and higher and higher the more upset he got. So he started sounding more and more like, like the killer. The, oh, can oh you imagine? God. Like, you're like, is it this guy? Is it not this guy? I mean, you know. But clearly he assaulted somebody already. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's him. And then he but gives then his he tell. Just, and you're just like, <laughs> oh, it's him. Oh, that gives oh, me goosebumps. The heaves. The heebies. This proved to investigators that they did have their perpetrator of all of these crimes. In court, however, it was determined that there was not enough physical evidence to try Stefani for the attempted murder of Karen and the murder of Kimberly. Hmm. But Barbara and Denise's cases came with witnesses, so they moved forward with these two cases. Okay. He would be tried in 1984 and 1985 for each case, and in each case, Stefani pleaded not guilty. 
Throughout his trials, Stefani was known to glare at each person as they spoke, and you could feel the tension from him. It was almost as if he could snap at any moment. Like, he was just waiting. You know what I mean? You ever around somebody like that, where you know that they're just, like, one stub toe away from just, like, losing their shit? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen seen it happen before my eyes. (sighs) Thankfully, it wasn't a murderer. Yeah. (laughs) But... Another notable thing that happened in trial was that they had had people in Stefani's personal life who testified that the voice on tape was that of Stefani's, including his ex-wife, his sister, and his former roommate. Oh, wow. He would be found guilty of second-degree murder of Barbara Simmons and guilty of the attempted murder of Denise Williams. He would be sentenced to serve 58 years in Oak Park Heights prison. Wow. Twelve years into his sentence... Stefani would find out that he had terminal skin cancer and that he only had six months to a year to live. Oh my god, what a twist. Right? What a twist. In a strange twist, (laughs) Stefani would ask to speak to investigators assigned to the outstanding cases of Karen Potek and Kimberly Compton. No. He would confess to the murder and the attempted murder. Wow. Furthermore, he confessed to one more murder that investigators never even knew was a murder. On July 12th, 1982, 33-year-old Kathleen Greening was found by a friend who went to check on the school teacher after not hearing from her in the last 24 hours. When arriving at the house, the friend found that Kathleen was in her bathtub and had seemingly slipped and drowned. The scene was ruled an accident. However, Stefani was now admitting that he had held her underwater, drowning the school teacher in her own bathtub after the two had got out on a date. And he... That was my stomach growling. Oh my gosh, it sounded like somebody talking. And like, he, oh. like, there's no way he would have known the details of that without having been there himself. Without having been there. Oh well, her her drowning was ruled a, an accident. Yeah. There was no need to investigate it. Wow. He was never linked to this crime, and again, was it was ruled by an accident. It had no previous connections to him as his MO, including not making another phone call afterwards. Yeah. So what was the difference? Maybe he did make a phone call and he hung up or maybe he, I don't know, you know. So another way of explaining why this scene was different was maybe because Paul Stefani actually knew Kathleen personally. Clearly she felt comfortable enough to actually go upstairs, get undressed herself, and then get into the bathtub because it didn't seem like there was a sign of a struggle at all. Yeah. So she felt comfortable enough. Wow. It also makes sense if he really cared about her, why... He felt the need to claim the other victims as his victims versus something that he did in a moment. Yeah. With a friend. It It's very, like, it doesn't make sense, but if you put it that way, like, I can see where he might yeah. have that mindset. Like, he probably didn't have rage, but he wanted to kill her anyways. Yeah. And the other women, I think it was very rage-fueled. Yeah, I think so, too. And that he had even said in an interview that... The night was going great. They had a great time at dinner. It, everything was normal. And all of a sudden, he just felt the need to strangle her. I wonder where that came from. That's so bizarre. Like, seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, it, it the only thing, like, it had to have been a seizure of some sort that skewed his brain yeah. chemistry. Or he was predisposed to developing something and the seizures was the trauma that pushed it over the edge. I think it's also another one of those, like, reclamation things where he didn't want another, a single other woman to leave his life. And I think that maybe the recordings are kind of like, maybe not a keepsake, 
But, like, voicing it out loud means that he's claiming responsibility for it so that it is his. Like, essentially, they're kind of his trophies, even though he knew that... He probably didn't know that they had them until he knew that they had them when they were broadcasted. That's true. So I think it's just kind of maybe a... Him confessing it is lightening that load a little bit, but it's also taking taking ownership of that crime it does and that kind, woman. Yeah, it does kind of seem like he took his time to get to know all of these women before he did anything, yeah. like had a conversation with them at least, and that you have a good point saying that he didn't want another woman to leave him that he had a connection with. Right. So maybe it just so happened to be a woman that he had a connection with that was also wearing red for some reason he associated that with rage or whatever. Right. At least once or twice that we know about. Paul Stefani did claim in his later years that he did have voices in his head that told him to commit these crimes. And then after each crime, along with calling them in, he would actually go to churches and pray afterwards, asking for forgiveness. Oh my god. It was also found out later that all of the photos that he collected of his ex-girlfriend, the Syrian woman, were of her wearing red, as red was her favorite color. Oh, wow. Hubies! That makes more sense now, too. June 12th, 1998, Paul Stefani would die in prison at age 53 years old. Dang. The end. The end! Mm -hmm. That was a good one. I know we've been talking about him for quite a while, just in general, in passing, but... I didn't realize there was, like, not a lot of information out there on his childhood. There's, like, zero. Yeah, and the episode that I listened to, a podcast episode about him a long time ago, and I just figured they didn't put any of that in there because that's not their thing, you know? They just talk about the crimes. They don't talk about the childhood, but dang. Yeah, there really wasn't anything. And, I again, I think it's just maybe we don't know a lot about him because he was the way that he was, and nobody wants to associate with that, or the way he was, and it seemed like he might have been kind of controlling as well in his marriage, Um, and that's just my perception, just because of the way that he would participate later. He seemed like he might, that's his thing, is kind of controlling, don't go, don't, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Dang. Well, thanks for bringing that. That was a good one. I I know it was a little shorter, but... It's all right. I mean, we have uh, really long episodes, yeah. and sometimes we don't have so long episodes because there's not a lot of it's information, true. like I you found said. The, but... the tape's really interesting. It's only the second time we've ever incorporated, like, 911 calls before. Yeah. It's always really interesting. That's true. You can hear everything. I'm going to have to get on top of my audio recordings for the next yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the meantime, you guys can hit us up on anywhere on social media, Diagnosing a Killer. Check out DiagnosingAKiller.com for all of your merch needs. Check out the episode coming out on Saturday with Hillary. That was a great time hanging out with her. We talked about animals. We talked about Florida. We talked about (laughs) Elliot Roger. We talked about a lot of random stuff. But it was a good conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we were able to do it. And we will see you guys on Monday with another Mental Breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. Love you. you. Bye. Bye.